Let's talk to our Father. Almighty God, we thank you for loving us so much that you would adopt us to be your very own and eradicate the fear that plagued our lives. Like you spoke to us through Paul, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and a sound mind. And today we ask you to take us further down the road in taking that ground for you as your child. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and have a seat. So glad to see you here today. You know, I have a memory that took place right down the road here at Scott and School. It was in the gym. It's one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. I'm about to tell you about it. Okay. My son was about seven years old. He was playing in a basketball game, and my daughter and I were there to watch. Now, my daughter was only about 18 months old, barely walking, but she was really active. So we took up a space over in the corner of the gym on the floor where she could kind of move around. And then the moment came. I looked up just in time to see the ball, the basketball, flying towards us, okay? It had been a long time since I had had my hands on a basketball. So my athleticism was at an all-time low, okay? I was not coordinated in handling a basketball. But I looked up there while I was hovering over my daughter, sitting on the floor, watching this wild ball fly at me, okay? There's the ball. Here's her head. Ball, head, ball, head. What happened was the ball creamed me flat on the nose. And the whole gym went silent while I grabbed my nose. It was a moment. Now, I have thought many times since then, what if I had just gotten on my feet and looked square at that basketball and caught it? I mean, my nose would have been really grateful and my daughter would have been safe. And I tell you that story because all around you, wild things are flying at you. Wild ideas are flying at you from every direction. And just like I was hovering over my daughter to protect her, you have something precious to protect. And that's your faith in Christ. That is your belief in the gospel that we just sang about. Now, you might ask, how important are my ideas anyway? Well, your ideas are critical for you. We are at the mercy of our ideas. Our ideas absolutely define our way of life. And see, in, your, in this culture, you're hearing the message, eh, whatever, it's all good, just stay positive. Well, you know what? It's not all good. And Paul knew that. And that's why he wrote to Timothy, Timothy is the one that he considered precious, that he was wanting to protect as he wrote from a dark, cold prison cell. You know what? Paul didn't mince words. He shot straight. In fact, that's why he was in this prison cell. But as he wrote to his dear son, Timothy, his son in the faith, he felt protective and he wanted to safeguard Timothy for the future he would face. See, Paul knew he'd be handing the baton to his protege, Timothy. Timothy was pastoring a church that Paul had helped to start. And, you know, in the painfully honest part of Paul's letter that we're going to look at today, 
He basically says, Timothy, unless you get on your feet and you look square at what's flying at you and you consider it carefully, then you know what? You're going to be weak. Unless you take a look at what's accepted and popular today, you're going to be vulnerable and unprotected. So I want to invite you right now. Would you take out your outline? It looks like this. In your Bible, we're turned to 2 Timothy 3. And if you're using one of our lobby Bibles, you'll find this on page 723. I am so grateful for Ray Johnston and Renee Schlepfer, who really helped me as I studied for this. Paul says to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that Timothy would need strength because he was facing pressure and persecution, both inside and outside the church. Timothy lived in a godless town called Ephesus. It was a chaotic culture of unbelief, where people were immoral, where everyone just did whatever was right in their own eyes, maybe kind of like what you and I are seeing around us today in our culture. For Timothy, there was violent persecution. There was a bloodthirsty Roman emperor in charge who was out to make a spectacle of Christians. His name was Nero. We're seeing more and more of that kind of persecution today, aren't we? Many people actually paying the ultimate price of their lives for their faith in Christ. Timothy faced pressure within the church, too. There was turmoil between immature followers of Jesus, like the bickering of children in the back seat. And so Timothy had the responsibility of helping these young followers of Christ learn how to live different, distinctive lives as God's people. You know, I am blown away by how relevant the Bible is. Like Ron said, it's just so relevant to what we're facing. Just like Timothy, we need to be living ready with our heads up. And so read with me. Verse 1, Paul said, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. You know what the NIV version says? Terrible times. Terrible. I think that word terrible fits. So now Paul lists them specifically. These wild, terrible things in this culture that Timothy would face. He named 18 things that are no good. 18 wild ideas flying at us. 18 ways for living stupid. Paul's going to mess with your life today. Are you ready for this? As I read this list, I had to do a heart check. And I just want to ask you to listen and do the same. See if you recognize any of these things Paul names. In verse 2, he says, For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God. You know, I had to do a double take on this NLT version. It says scoffing at God because in other translations, it says people will be abusive. And I thought, well, how did they get scoffing at God from abusive? And then I realized... If you want to thumb your nose at God, the surest way to do that is to abuse a life that he created. That's scoffing at God. And then Paul says, people will be disobedient to their parents. You know, in today's culture, obedience to parents has been made out to look like an archaic concept, hasn't it? He says they will be ungrateful. Think about that word ungrateful. How many of you serve the public some way in in your job? How many of you? 
All right, that word ungrateful, that may be pertinent to what you experience. Maybe instead of gratitude, it's more like entitlement, right? Like 90% of the people that you serve expect you to be a minion. Recently, I was in a public restroom washing my hands when a gal came in whose job it was to clean the bathroom. And as she was refilling the paper towels, I was drying my hands. And I used the towel, you know, to wipe around the sink. And she looked at me and she said, thank you. And I said, no, thank you for what you're doing to serve us. And as I left that bathroom with her still grinning at me, I thought, what would it be like to live in a world where people just express gratitude, right? Instead of like, I'm here, you're there to serve me, right? And Paul says, they will consider nothing sacred. Other translations say, unholy. Now, what is holy? We've messed the word holy up. Holy or sacred doesn't mean you wear a priest's collar, you know. It just means you're different. Holiness isn't a denomination. It's a lifestyle. It's like every, everybody's going downstream in one direction, and you're just different. I want to be holy. It's not that I have this down. I struggle with this every day. But I want to reflect God to my world. Like it talks about in Romans 12. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's holiness. You know, that's why I'm so excited about the R12 series we're going to have in the fall. Because I think it's incredible that God is a father who would take an ordinary, go-with-the-flow individual like me and transform them into somebody who stands out for him. And then Paul says in verse 3, they will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others. You know, I can't help but think of social media. I love Facebook. I could get lost in it. So many people use it for good, you know, to share their trust in Christ. But I can't help but think of some people who use social media media to drag their hurt and bitterness out in front of everybody like they're picking up stones to throw. You know, for them, it's not Facebook. It's hate book. Unloving and unforgiving. And Paul says, they have no self-control. Sounds like Paul was acquainted with the man who wrote to the Dear Abby column for some advice. This guy says, Dear Abby, I'm in love. I'm having an affair with two women, and I can't marry them both. Please tell me what to do. And don't give me that stupid morality stuff. (laughs) And she wrote back. She said, Dear sir, the difference between humans and animals is morality. Please write to a veterinarian. that good? (laughs) Paul says they will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends and be reckless. See, he's talking about people who say, yeah, whatever, and just kind of plow through life and plow others under with their own agenda. No regard for moral beauty. And if anybody tries to bring it up, their answer is just a narcissistic, yeah, whatever. Paul says they will be puffed up with pride. 
and love pleasure rather than God. Now, did you notice how this list of 18 terrible things starts and ends? The ESV version is so descriptive. I put it on your notes. The first one is they'll be lovers of self. The second one, they're lovers of money. And it ends with the, the name lovers of pleasure. See, the question is, what do we love? It's a matter of our affections. We are always motivated by what we love, always. That's why changing your behavior never starts with a, a, a set of rules. It's always by changing what you love. Think about the story of Jesus. God didn't send rules. He sent his son so we can love him. That's what changes us. By contrast, Paul says these people are lovers of self. That's humanism. It's all about me. You better not get in my way. It's all about being a lover of money, Paul says. You know, that's materialism. I want more stuff, more money. Then there's the lovers of pleasure. That's hedonism. More, more, more. I'm not satisfied. The want for more is a problem, having a hole in your bucket. I heard a question asked, who is happier, a man with $10 million or a man with a dozen kids? Well, it's the man with the kids, of course, because he doesn't want any more. The want for more will make you miserable. Now, why does Paul even bother with naming all this bad behavior and this insatiable hunger for more? I mean, haven't people been acting this way through all of history? Isn't it kind of like saying, in the last days, people will breathe oxygen? I'll tell you why Paul is so up in arms. Paul was writing to Timothy about church people. Uh, you know, that list was so bad, you may not even believe it. But if we look at verse 5, you can see it wasn't people in the world in general that Paul was describing. He was warning Timothy about the people that he would encounter within the church. So while we read this, I want to just ask you to notice some characteristics of harmful people. And the first one is an emphasis on external behaviors. You might want to fill in this little chart external behaviors. Verse 5 says they will act religious. Can you underline that word act? It's external. But they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Paul is alarmed. Okay, He's distressed because he's seeing people who call themselves Christ followers but they're into externals, pretending to be gospel people. They're not living transformed lives, and they're saying, hey, whatever, it's all good. They're, they're living unregenerated lives. And here's why. It's in that verse. Because they're rejecting the power that could make them godly. Circle power. Now, what, what power is he talking about? Well, I want you to see this verse. It's not on your notes, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the message of the cross is the power of God. See, when you let the cross have its effect on you, that's when you experience God's power in your life. If you just behave in a religious way, but you deny the cross, then your life is powerless. Ray Steadman said it so well. He said, let the cross have its effect upon you. 
The denial of the cross is Christianity without Christ, godliness without God, and spirituality without the Spirit. See, it's only the cross of Jesus that teaches you and me how to deny ourselves. And then Paul goes on to name two specific examples of harmful people in the church. They were leading others astray. They were gaining an audience. So weak, naive, vulnerable people were following them. See, not only do these harmful people work through externals, but they prey on the weak. P-R-E-Y. They prey on weak people. It says in verse 6, they are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin. They're feeling guilty. Now, what women is Paul talking about? I mean, he's not saying, listen, that all women are weak. Paul has been accused of being misogynist. But remember, he started this letter out by talking about two women that he was really grateful for in Timothy's life that were great examples of faith. Timothy's mom and his grandmother. No, Paul was referring to false teachers within the church who had been gaining a following by preying on some particular weak, vulnerable women. And what made them vulnerable, those particular women, was this. Endless new teachings. They were listening to new teachings. Like Ron talked last week about supplemental teachings. Okay, they were listening. In verse 7, it says, Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. See, people who feel guilty, who haven't sunk their teeth into the grace of God, are the ones who are most vulnerable to these, to legalism and to what Paul calls new teachings. Paul was saying these people of pretense generate new techniques to keep people coming back. You know, new, new techniques are big in our, in our society too. Just next time you're in the grocery store, look at the magazine rack if you dare. See, there, it, it might say 10 ways to a better marriage, 10 tips for raising teens, new techniques for a better core, for a firmer butt, whatever. But endless new teachings. Now, here's another thing about harmful people. They claim special powers. We're about to read one of the most obscure verses in the whole New Testament, but it gives so much insight. Verse 8, these teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. Now, who are Janus and Jambres? Have you ever heard of them? No, these guys, they come out of the story of Exodus. Well, actually, they're never even mentioned there for those of you who have that book memorized. But in Jewish tradition in that day, in Paul's day, Janus and Jambres are the names of two of Pharaoh's court magicians. They're on the right side here in this picture, the guy in the silver and behind him in the red. And they would fake miracles to match Moses' real miracles. And then when the people of Israel left Egypt, Janus and Jambres joined them and pretended to be converts. Then when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, these slick guys lure the Israelites back into paganism. And even Aaron and Miriam. And they say, give us all your gold, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll connect you to God. Paul is saying, 
harmful people are just like Janice and Jambres, flashy, full of personality, new teachings, miracles. And Paul is saying in verse 8, they have a counterfeit faith. They're fake. Now, fake is helpful sometimes, isn't it? I mean, we have a friendly French word for fake. Have you ever heard of faux grass? We have a couple in our church. You may, you may have some of this too, but Dick and Judy, if you've ever been to their house, they have faux grass. That's a euphemism for fake grass. They don't mow their grass. They vacuum it. <laughs> and I'm telling you, you cannot tell the difference except that it's gorgeous in the dead of winter and they never water it. There's a perk to faux, right? Well, and I'm a believer in faux hair color. <laughs> uh, someday I may, uh, you know, make peace with au naturel, but for today I'm a fan. But faux can be dangerous. Fake, counterfeit. You ever think, what makes counterfeit so dangerous? It's because it has buying power, like counterfeit money, but only temporarily. And these people Fake people in the church are harmful because nothing disillusions faster than two-faced, inauthentic people who claim the name of Christ but are not living transformed lives. So avoid these people who have an appearance of godliness but not the real thing. When I read this, I thought, Paul, how depressing. But it's, it's true. These people will be out there, even inside the church not living distinctive lives in any way, just out for themselves. So what do we do? How can we be sure that we don't follow people like that or that we, we are not people like that? Well, look at these words of hope. It's on the back side of your notes. I love how Paul starts the next verse. He says, you, however, it's like straight talk from father to son. He says to Timothy, you, however, you're different. You know, I want to be a you, however, Paul is basically saying to Timothy, there are two kinds of people. There are the, yeah, whatevers, we've heard all about them. And there are the, I'm sorry, there are the, yeah, whatevers, and there are the, you, howevers. Kind of a tongue twister. I want to be a you, however. Not so I can draw attention to myself or what I do, but so that I can draw attention to Christ and what he's done for me. In this Paul, in this part of Paul's letter, he describes two ways that you and I can be among the you howevers. And the, we can be strong no matter the times. The first way to be strong is to learn from healthy people. You might want to write that down. How do you know if somebody's healthy, if they're on track? Well, here's one way. They have solid convictions. He says in verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct. He's talking about convictions. You know, character is always based on convictions. He's saying, be careful who you read, who you follow. You know, in our church's history, this has been really important for us. I've served in our celebration arts team for all of these years, and, and my husband's one of the pastors, and we have really lifted this high as a value in our church, convictions. You see, we make it our goal to never put anybody up front whose um, life is somehow inconsistent with the message that they're proclaiming. 
It, it may be that they're speaking or they're singing or they're even playing an instrument. It doesn't matter. This is a challenge for us, but it's really important. I'm not just talking about some secret, flamboyant, flagrant sin hidden in somebody's life. You see, I've seen churches and ministries where people can run around feverishly accomplishing a long list of really good things. But it's possible that some of them are driven by ego. Or maybe they have no depth to their own personal daily walk with Christ. And their portfolio and their exhaustion is covered by a thin veneer of spiritual-sounding language. You know, this is not something for me to look at and somebody else and judge. It's something for me, me to take seriously in my own life because I don't want to live like that. And when Paul says, my teaching, my conduct, what do we see in Paul? Convictions. Paul was open. He was shockingly transparent about seeking in pursuing the character of Jesus in, him, in his own life. Think about these words. He says, my aim in life. It's talking about Paul's purpose. He was a man of purpose. He was laser focused. You know what? Purpose always gives a person passion. Paul was a man of passion. But so many people flounder from a lack of purpose. In fact, that's one of the reasons for addictions in our culture. When, when somebody has no purpose, they, they drink, they use drugs, they shop, they eat so that they can feel something. It's no wonder that Paul was a man of passion because he was a man with a purpose. And he goes on, he says, my faith. Paul says this is another conviction in a healthy person, a person with faith. God is the first one that they run to, not to their friends, not to social media. A person with faith will go to the throne before they go to the phone. Faith. He's saying in a healthy person, someone worth following, you'll find solid convictions. Now here's something else about a healthy person, and it's a soft heart. A soft heart. Think about it. Have you ever been around someone who's really smart? Maybe they know the Bible better than anybody else, but they're short on tenderness you know, maybe they're sarcastic, they're caustic. <laughs> Everybody's ducking around them, you know, tiptoeing. What are that, what's that person's relationships like? They have weak relationships, right? A soft heart is important. And Paul says, you know my patience, my love. I'll never forget a story I heard about Dallas Willard, who taught at USC for many years. One time at the end of a class, a student stood up at the end of this class and tried to nail Dallas Willard to the wall. Not very smart. Nail him on some, some point, right? And <laughs> Dallas's response is something I'll never forget. He just said to the whole class, class dismissed. Afterwards, another student in the class went to his office and he said, Dr. Willard, why didn't you set that guy straight? I mean, you could have put him in his place. And Dallas Willard said something that I have memorized. His line was this, I'm practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. 
That's a soft heart. Not having to have the last word. That's something I, I try to do in my own home. And Paul says, a soft heart is part of being a healthy person. And then Paul says that healthy people stay faithful. He says, you know about my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. Staying faithful. Paul says, Timothy, you know how I handle suffering. That's where all the masks come off. That's where the rubber meets the road. And then verse 11 and 12, he describes all the suffering he'd gone through. Paul is saying, Timothy, don't let folks tell you that if you suffer, that there's something wrong with your faith. Or that if you choose to become a follower of Christ, that God goes to work, you know, to make you prosperous and keep all harm away from you. That was not Paul's experience. Hard times come to everybody, especially if you choose to follow Christ. In verse 13, Paul says, people who mislead others, imposters, they're going to have their heyday, but ultimately, they're flashes in the pan. People will fall away. Why? Because their true colors will be revealed. But in the meantime, they cause plenty of damage. So steer clear and focus on healthy people. Now, Paul says there's a second thing you can do to be strong in terrible times. And it's this. Learn from God's word. Stay in the Bible. He says in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know, in the next verse, he, he talks about sacred writings. He's talking about the Bible. And we're going to really get into this next week. But let me just ask you, why is the Bible so important for you? Okay, have you, you know about how a virus can get into your computer? Well, for you to stay in the Word of God, it's like installing antivirus software on your computer. It'll protect you, and that's critical. We've been talking about the church, church people, right? Well, if you think about all of church history, there were some segments of history where so-called God followers seemed to be going bonkers, all in the name of religion. There was the Crusades. There was violence against the Jews. There were witch trials. In more recent days, there was televangelist scandals. And then there was even priest abuse scandals, all in the name of the church. You know, when I look at that, I just have to wonder, what's wrong with you people? Didn't you read the Bible? But, you know, the fact is, no, they didn't. What all of those situations have in common is that reading the scriptures was left to someone else, to their leaders. And that works fine for a while until their leaders come unhinged and then everything falls apart. But it's easy for us to look at those situations with kind of a de detachment and say, how could they stoop so low? Those people should have read the scriptures. And then we ourselves might fail to really invest in knowing what's in this book for us. You know, for me, I, I, I might tend to, to just see what, whatever's right in front of me. Like, you know, what's for dinner? When, when is the next Star Wars movie coming out? Obi-Wan Kenobi? But you know, Studying the Bible takes commitment. It takes intentionality. 
And the fact is, our country is at an all-time low for Bible literacy. I heard a story told about the Chicago Bears back in the 80s. It was so funny. Coach Mike Ditka was giving a pregame pep talk to his team, and he told their defensive tackle, 338-pound William Refrigerator Perry, <laughs> to be ready at the end of his pep talk to say the Lord's Prayer. Okay? So now, but... Their quarterback was a character, uh, outspoken guy named Jim McMahon. And he goes, there's no way that the fridge knows the Lord's Prayer. I'll bet you 50 bucks he didn't know it. Well, the coach thought, well, that's weird, you know, betting on a prayer. But, hey, this is the Bears. So he placed the bet with Jim, 50 bucks. And then he went ahead and did his pep talk. And at the end, Refrigerator Perry starts in on the Lord's Prayer, you know. Now I lay me down to sleep. (laughs) And Jim reaches in his pocket and pulls out 50 bucks. He hands it over to the coach. He goes, I had no idea Perry knew the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) Isn't that good? So here is the question, you guys. What are you doing? What am I doing today to invest ourselves? in knowing this book and becoming more convinced in our souls of what we have believed. See, this is why our church is so much about the Bible, why our community groups all revolve around the Bible, why the notes that you find here in your program are for reflecting deeper on the Bible. A while back, Ron and I had a chance to go down the hill to Bayside Church in Rockland, great church, and we got to hear one of the pastors of their campuses, the, the pastor Sherwood Carthen, who pastored at uh, South Sacramento Bayside. It was a treat to hear him. Devoted pastor for Sacramento, chaplain of the Sacramento Kings, um, you know, knew God's word. And, and I just love listening to his passion and how people respond to him. Well, I want to share a clip with you from that very day. I want you to hear the determined perspective this man Pastor Sherwood had on how much you and I need the Bible in our lives. Let's watch this. The word has to be in you, and we've got to get an army of believers, a body of people who have memorized scripture, who have meditated on scripture till it becomes part of who they are. So that when you go through situations, you won't be looking for a word, you'll have a word. I can't get a witness in here. See, 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 if we had been in the word, we'd realize that Isaiah 26 and 3 says, I'll keep you in perfect peace. They whose mind is stayed on me. We know that Nehemiah 8 and 10 says the joy of the Lord is our strength. We know that Psalms 34 and 19 says many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. We know that Psalms 30 and 5 says his anger isn't but for a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping may endure through the night, but joy is coming in the morning. If we were in the Word, we'd know that. Woo, that guy could preach. (laughs) You know, what we didn't know that day, though, was that within a week or so that he would die. Suddenly, unexpectedly, that... Bishop Sherwood Carthen would go on and meet the Lord face to face and receive his reward. You know what that did for me? When I got that news, 
It was to make what he said that day even more memorable to me. Those were like his last words. And that's the same as this letter from Paul. You see, Paul would die soon after writing this. Of course, the difference was Paul knew that his execution was probably coming. But he knew the end was coming, and so he made sure he wrote so that every word would count. When he said this, And how from childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise. Will you circle the word wise? God wants you to be wise. He doesn't want you to just white-knuckle it to heaven. He wants you to be strong. He's made a way for you to do that, and it happens. When you do these two things, when you invest yourself in knowing the word of God and when you learn from healthy people, those are two great ways of making yourself a student of Jesus, his apprentice. Yeah, it's going to be costly to follow Christ. Paul knew that, but Paul also knew that evil has a limited shelf life. It may look for you and me sometimes, like it looked for Paul and Timothy. It may look like evil is winning. You know, Paul could say to Timothy, yeah, Nero is looking pretty strong. You know, he's persecuting the church. He may execute me, but who really wins? 2,000 years later, people named their children Paul and their dogs Nero. (laughs) We know who wins. So you can be wise. Wise for what? Look, look at the rest of that verse. Able to make you wise for what? For salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For salvation. I want you to think about this. Can I really have your attention right now? I have a concern for you. As I worked on this, my concern for you is that some of you have the idea. In, in fact, this is one of those wild wild ideas that are flying at you. Some of you have bought into the idea that this book, the Bible, is a book of rules. You think that if you keep the rules, if you're moral enough, if you're good enough, that God will let you into heaven. Listen, you might want to write this down. God isn't looking for me to be good. He's looking for me to be desperate. See, that's what salvation is. Salvation is giving up on rule keeping where I try really hard to be good enough. Salvation is realizing that I am desperate for what Jesus has done on that cross, what he's already accomplished with his resurrection. See, Jesus is the one who paid the price to give you heaven. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. So it's wise to put your faith in Christ, wise for salvation. He is your salvation, so you don't have to be afraid of terrible times. No matter the times, you're going to be strong in his grace, and you're going to move from terrible times into times of honoring God with your life, and then you're going to live with him forever. Can I ask you to pray with me? Lord, you're more aware than we are of the terrible times that we do live in. Thank you for your perspective. And thank you, Lord, for being the God who does have the last word. 
We put our trust in you. We thank you for giving us ways that we can be stronger. Thank you for not giving us a spirit of fear, but for actually helping us day by day to make changes so that we can live with power and love and a stronger, sound mind. And Lord, I pray for every person in this room, no matter what they do in their job, among their peers, in their, in their neighborhood, Lord, maybe some of them are advocating for the helpless and the hurting in this society. Lord, I pray that whatever we do day by day, that we would live in the joyful awareness of your presence and that you are the God who has the last word. And Jesus, we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face. Meanwhile, help us to follow hard after you with passion and purpose. And we pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen.